Welcome to Talk is Sheep, a podcast by the Wild Sheep Society of British Columbia. Join us as we cover conservation updates, tips and tricks to campfire chats. So, in episode 19, another epic with Omer, never a boring <laughs> session oh. with him. <laughs> I, I, always, I always feel like uh, we, we should do a... a, a what do, you, what do you call it? Like a, a warning of language. And I think we're going to have to again, but as we said to him at the beginning, be you. If he, if he uh, uh, restricted himself, he, he wouldn't be Omer. And that's why we love him. Right. It's uh, <laughs> he, well, he, he says it like it is. He says it like it is what's on his mind. We're definitely going to put explicit on this one, but the truth is, is, you know, as funny as he is and he is restricted on these. Cause I've seen him when he's not on the podcast. And, <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. He's so there, much there was, there was no mention of Ron and Jeremy on this one, so I was a little disappointed, but whatever it was. Uh, well, was not not good. that we recorded. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, this is a great episode with Omer, episode 19, um, and we dive deep on optics. So, um, you know, I, I've been dealing with precision optics for uh, the last 15 years. I bought a bunch of stuff for them, and the biggest thing for me when I'm dealing with Omer is the honesty, the honest conversation. And like, like yeah. I said on the podcast, there's been a few times where he's talking me out of stuff. Somebody said, oh, you got to get this. And I go in and I said, hey, what about this? And he's like, no, that's not what you need, man. Like this is um, this is what you need and this is why you want to use it. Um, and uh, he's, for me, a trusted source now. When I call him, I know he's not yeah. going to steer me wrong. I just talk about what I need out, out of something, what I'm going to use it for. That's right. And, and he tells me what I should be looking at. Yeah, and he, I, he's, not, he's not a salesman in, in the true sense of the word. He's, he's not trying to sell you a product. He's trying to sell you what you need, not, not what necessarily what you want, right? Yeah. Absolutely. And this is a really interesting one. I learned a lot on it. Um, you know, I, I've, I've got some of his products, so, uh, but there was a lot I learned on there and, and some stuff too. I was like, it was over my head, but I'm actually offline. I'm going to chat with him about some things. Uh, you know, I, I'm kind of new to the long range shooting stuff. I've obviously never harvested an animal long range. Um, certainly by most standards, um, you know, I've made a few longer shots, but nothing like five, six, seven, 800 yards, none of that stuff. But, uh, so a lot to learn still. And then some of the stuff on this conversation, I was, you know, was above my head still. So, Oh, oh yeah. definitely. Uh, talking about uh, the size of your pupils and light gathering and parallax, all stuff that generally people don't think of when they say, well, I, I need to buy a set of binoculars. It, they, they focus on magnification and not how things work. And same thing with the uh, rifle scopes and hell, even diving a little bit. He, he didn't even get that in depth into range finders and, I, I didn't realize that there was more to it than just pointing and shooting, so to speak, right? It's, it doesn't just give you a range, but they talk about compensation of angles and just, it, it's a great conversation that is truly informative if you're looking to buy some optics or just looking to learn a bit about optics. Well, the cool thing is too, is it's kind of, you know, for somebody starting out and trying to get that first, you know, piece of optics for their, their mountain hunt, whatever that might be, 
Uh, this is a great listen, but it also, I think, provides a bit more in-depth for guys that maybe do have some of the stuff but haven't really shown an interest in it or, or maybe haven't taken a course or something like that. I definitely learned. Um, there's no question about it. So Every time I talk to him, I do. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, good listen. But um, just uh, on the wild sheep side, a couple things uh, just yeah. want to raise. We got our northern fundraiser this weekend, so that's going to be live February 6th. Um, so you can check that uh, online. We'll put links uh, in the show notes to that. And uh, we got our Kamloops uh, Wild Sheep Salute to Conservation on March 12th and 13th. So that's coming up and we'll slowly be releasing stuff on that as well. So um, pretty good time. Yeah, there's some pretty cool auction items too on that Northern auction. So you have to check it out. Uh, one thing in particular is this belt buckle. It's uh, a one-off, absolutely beautiful. It's already bidding quite high because yeah. people want that thing it's they do that every year up north and it's a real cool addition to their show so yeah. uh raffles we got four mm-hmm. new raffles out uh just come out this past week and um we've got a sick gear package a stone glacier package and then uh we also have a big bore rifle package uh, pretty sweet uh, rig 6.5 prc carbon fiber um that was a dawn lineup donation and gary flack did the work on a beautiful rifle and then um, we've got a life member raffle this year. So um, Yeti sponsored that one. It's going to be pretty cool. So uh, you can win an antelope hunt in Alberta. For us BC boys and girls, this is a great opportunity because we don't get to hunt, hunt them out here, right? So Yeah, you have to be a life member. So, yeah, if you're if you're not a life member, sign up to be one. You get a, an exclusive Plus shot at this membership raffle. Drive so going on. pretty cool. So, yeah, nice. Oh, lots yeah. of, so for lots those of raffles, anyone that wants to check it out, it's wildsheepsociety.com forward slash raffle. And you have to go on the website there, buy your tickets. And uh, yeah, some really cool prizes uh, coming up for our show. So anyway, episode 19 with Omer. Uh, it's going to be a good one. And uh, enjoy the listen. Across Canada and throughout the world, if you come across a campfire in the woods, on a mountaintop, or next to a river, you'll find warm company and friendly people gathered around. Regardless of your lifestyle or place you call home, we invite you to learn more about what it means to be a hunter in the modern era. If you love the outdoors, care about where your food comes from, and are concerned for the future of wildlife and the environments that they need to survive, pull up a seat. We have a story to tell. Welcome to our campfire. Be you. Okay. (laughs) Let me get my clothes off. Hold on. (laughs) As Omer get dressed, we welcome everybody to the podcast. <laughs> we don't even get started, and we're already in the rabbit hole. Oh, goodness, excellent! Uh, <laughs> All well, right, man. So <laughs> good to see you. Uh, we had you on the show before, and uh, we got to know who Omer was and what made him tick. But uh, you know, we're really missing what you're really good at, and that's um, what is that? The, I don't know. Well, okay, fair enough. That's that's a good question, but. Uh, today we're going to dig into uh, optics. So all, all these sheep hunters are on the mountain. There's guys that are starting out. They don't know where to go, where to start, how to get going. Um, but then we got guys that have been hunting for years and they're looking for good optics at a, a good price, but they want something that's a good quality that they can afford. And obviously if you have an endless budget, um, and that might not necessarily get you the best optics either for the sheep environment that we're hunting in, right? So I'm hoping today, Omar, you can jump into that and talk a little bit about, um, you know, different aspects of where you want to go uh, for a mountain hunter and specifically a sheep hunter, um, if we okay. can kind of dive into that. Sure. So I mean, actually, high I level stuff. about that. 
we're the ironic store. We sell. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> no, of, of course. Well, it seemed appropriate. Steve and I were talking before the show here. And we're like precision optics. Okay, it's all in the name right there. So it's an optics <laughs> show. It makes sense, right? Okay, yeah. so you're. Let, let's just start really like high level stuff. You're a new sheep hunter. Uh, you're interested in this. Uh, you know, you, you're you're kind of starting out, but you you know you hunted before. Um, you know, kind of coming in, looking at uh, price point. Let's just go at price point for an introductory guy that, you know, he comes into your store and he says, I need some optics and he's going to go on a sheep hunt. Um, where are you going to send him in terms of a spotter, a range finder, a bino? What does that look like for somebody that's just getting going? So for like my best advice, if he's an actual sheep hunter and has the bug and is studying all the stuff, first of all, break up with your girlfriend or get divorced. Uh, <laughs> sell, sell basically all your unnecessary shit that you have. Uh, and get like one of those the lowest interest credit card you can get and then just just go balls deep in in all four of those because uh, it's a pretty pricey venture so obviously I'm being sarcastic um, you know we used to call it the holy trinity the the range the the spotter the bino and um, the rifle scope but now it's kind of like the four pillars because with long range shooting you have to have some sort of a range finder whether it's part of your bino or independent so there's four pieces of kit there and even buying them like mid pack, you know, you're going to be like two grand for your bino, two grand for your high, two grand for your spotter, you know, in the high teens for rifle scope. And then, you know, whatever you want on the rangefinder. So that's a chunk of change. So there, there's an approach that I have to that. Um, not sure how you want to tackle it. Cause uh, they're, they're pretty, there's a lot to talk about there, but would it be okay if maybe before we get into the specifics of each optic or an optic, I can just give a rundown so that people, when they're looking at specs on the tech sheets for all this shit, it'll make some sense. Cause there's, there's a lot of stuff that these manufacturers publish. Some of it just doesn't make sense to people, but there are a few things that they really need to pay attention to so that they can suck the best value for their dollar out of an optic. No, definitely. Yeah, I, I think that's the important part here is we find the right tool for the job, right? And finding good value, right? Um, you know, you can go, you can spend an unlimited amount. It might not be the right tool for the right job. If you've got a, a spotter that weighs 20 pounds, it's probably not the right job for a sheep hunt, right? So, exactly. so I, yeah, that'd be great if you can hit on that stuff. That'd be fantastic. Okay, I'll, I'll, try, to, I'll try to do it in, in as uh, anecdotal a way as possible so that people don't fall asleep uh, or you guys. Um, I mean, Kyle, you're probably tired, so it wouldn't take much, but, uh, but I'm going to start out with, um, a pretty commonly seen spec, but it has great significance on an optic, particularly your binos and that's called exit pupil. And in simple terms, what exit pupil is, uh, mathematically, it's real simple. You take the objective size and you divide it by the magnification. So let's take the most common optic sold. That's a 10 by 42, uh, bino. Uh, so 10 dividing into 42 is 4.2. So if you see an exit pupil, it's in millimeters. And that's actually the width of the image plane, the disk of light, which bears the image coming down the tube. So the reason they express it in millimeters like that is so that you can kind of figure it out relative to your eye. Now, the average human eye during daylight hours, normal daylight, has a width of four millimeters. 
Okay. So what you want is to ensure that the exit pupil of the optic is as large or larger than your pupil is going to be under normal conditions. Now in bright light, pupils dilate to about two. If you're stoned, 1.5. Um, <laughs> if it's, if, <laughs> if there are guys that are out there doing that anyway. Uh, and then under low light, it'll dilate all the way out to like eight millimeters. Okay. So there's really no optic that's going to have an exit pupil of that size. But, but that's one of the reasons why a 10 by 42 bino or an eight by 42 are highly recommended and common because they give you sort of that optimal, um, right. exit pupil for normal use. If the exit pupil starts to get really small and Kyle, you've spent a ton of time behind your, your spotter, you can attest to this, that little disc of light is pretty small. And so it's hard to get the image plane inside your eye so that right. your actual op optic nerves can register what the fuck you're looking at. So right. when you're looking at exit pupil, bigger is better and optimal is going to be between four and five. But realistically in a bino, you're looking at 4.2 for, for most use. Now, when you get into high magnification optics, as the magnification increases, the exit pupil decreases. So don't get too caught up on that. We're talking mainly for observation optics. It bears mm. a lot on, uh, with respect to a bino. You don't want, and okay, and I'll, and, I'll, and I'll give a small anecdote on this. So I talk to guys and they're like, well, I want 10 by 32s and they're hunters. I'm like, why do you want 10 by 32s? Well, they're compact and portable. I'm like, okay, do you ever hunt in dawn or dusk conditions? And if they say yes, I'm like, don't be dumb get a 10 by 42. Like who cares about the little bit of weight that you're going to be packing? You're going to hate a 10 by 32. And, mm -hmm. uh, and that's the truth. So, so that's exit pupil. Uh, there's another number that you can pretty much ignore. It's called twilight factor. All it is is exit pupil expressed with different math. It's supposed to give a number that tells you the higher the number, the better the, the low light performance, but it, it's pure math based on the physics of the of the of the optic. It doesn't put any regard into the quality of the glass elements. So you can have two binos that have the same twilight factor by two different brands. I'm not going to, you know, make fun of anyone, uh, you know, in that regard. But if the, if one has lower quality glass, twilight factor does not take that into consideration. So, you know, people can hate me for saying this. Uh, focus on exit people don't really get hung up on twilight factor okay um so a quick question for you so we got yeah. 10 by 42s um what if you go um so you want a bigger magnification you're willing to carry the weight so you, you got a 4.2 uh uh exit pupil factor there right yeah so yep. then you go go to so 10 by uh say 12 by 50s right it's basically the same thing right so um, well yes and no so so yes, I mean, you can run the math, like you go at 12 by 56, so go 56 divided by 12, that's 4.6, right? Yeah. So, ooh, I have a bigger exit pupil, but there's right. something else that I'm going to get to, and that's like uh, your, your mind's ability to grapple with magnification. And um, the, the optimal maximum magnification for the human brain and eye with, without, without it being anchored is 8.5. 10 is doable by most people often you'll know you got to kind of anchor your elbows when you're viewing 
once you go above 10, the lack of stability between the image that you're seeing and your brain's ability to stabilize it makes viewing very difficult. So you could have a, a 15 power bino, but you try to freehand it and your image is so, so unstable that you actually can't make out detail. Like you could have the best glass in the world, but it's going to have to be stabilized. Right. So again, that's, that's why the 10 by 42 is so dominant over any other mag range uh, or, or uh, objective size. Okay. So some guys I see now, like they're going to this bino setup where they have a tripod. And I think some guys are even going as far as taking a heavier weight bino yeah. Um, exclusively, and they're not taking a tripe a spotter anymore, right? So, but that, by fifty sixes, yeah, yeah. So, you, but you, you, it's not really benefiting you because you can't use those fifteens for freehanding, which is the whole point of having binos. So they're, you they're kind very of difficult. shot yourself in the foot. Right? Yeah, so it's Great. it's a trade off. I know guys that rock that, um, and and when it's set up on a tripod, the fifteen by fifty six, um, you know, it's it's fifty percent more magnification than a ten, but when it's stabilized on a tripod it blows your mind how much more mm -hmm. detail you'll pick up, especially in the Alpine. It's big country and it's easy to pass over details. Um, so those are valid and I saw a lot of those setups, but what you say is totally true. The ability to just freehand a 15, I mean, you gotta be a statue, okay? Mm -hmm. And you can't be breathing heavy, even like planting and putting your elbows on your, your thighs or your knees. I mean, I've tried to do it. Um, and uh, it, it becomes very, very difficult. And if, if, if glassing is fatiguing, you will not glass. If you're not glassing, you're not going to see anything. So mm -hmm. the analogy that I always put is like, you put a good set of 10 by 42s in one guy's hand and you put eights, 12s or 15s in his hunting partner's hands. Mm -hmm. The 10 by 42 guy is going to outglass him all day long. Eights are not sufficient. Like I'll again, I'll kind of when I get to binos, I'll get into this in depth. But um, it's it's a choice. And for for you pussy out counters, ounce counters out there, sorry, but if you're gonna pack a fifteen by fifty six, you got to remember you got to pack a tripod, an adapter, right. Right. all that stuff, right? And you know, no slight, uh, it is a very valid way of hunting. And I know guys that pack tens, a fifteen by fifty six, and a spotter. So they run right. the 10s for general surveying. If they're set up somewhere, they're going to be there for a while. They run the 15s and maybe the other guy runs a spotter because the reality is with a 15 by 56 setup on a tripod, you can cover way more ground. It's got a wider field of view. Right. And there's another, there's another thing, again, we're kind of jumping around, but there's another thing that happens with the human brain when you're using both eyes versus one eye. The apparent brightness increases by about 40%. So they've measured this and asked people. So they're getting you're getting exactly the same amount of light into your eye. The light meter is like they're getting you know this much light through the spotter, but when you're using both eyes, your brain thinks it's about forty percent brighter. Right. So okay. you know the psychology of that makes glassing more effective. But right. I mean, what, whatever you want, you want you want to pack all that weight, go right ahead, no problem. So on that note, if you um, you still need really a spotter because if you're counting rings yeah. and you've got a 15, 15 set, you, you know, it's probably not going to cut the mustard if you're at 300 yards and you want to, totally. you know, or outside of that with yeah. this, you need a 60 power probably to, to yeah. count rings. Right. So, so, and I'll get right into that when we hit spotters, but for Alpine sure. hunters, yeah. there, there really is no, like you cannot, 
not have a spotting scope. I mean, that's why I got into this whole business was because I needed a Swarovski spotting scope. Like I was told, given very good advice, you need a Swarovski spotting scope if you're going to hunt goats and sheep. And, uh, and I'll, and I will get into the minutia of that. Uh, it's actually a difficult conversation that I have with anybody that call calls here looking for a spotter. Um, but another important, um, thing to look at when you're choosing an optic is called light transmission. And that basically boils down to, you start with hundred percent light on the air side of the objective. How much light is left to hit your eye on the ocular side after all the light passes through. So light hits an optic, it goes through various glass elements and goes through coatings. And depending on the quality of the glass element and the efficiency and effectiveness of those coatings to do all the physics to the glass, to correct it and make it viewable, how much light is lost. The big problem with that number is companies lie, okay? I don't know how many specs I've looked at. I'm like, oh really, they got 90% light transmission? Sure they do. Here are the facts. And if this offends people, again, I don't give a shit. There are two types of man, there's two types of companies out there when it comes to optics. There are companies that are manufacturers and control their inputs, particularly the glass elements and the coatings and marketing companies who must purchase glass from someone else. Now Mm -hmm. there are better manufacturers on both sides of that. But again, here is the reality. If you've been producing glass at the highest level for a very long time and you pioneered and have been perfecting coatings, which are almost as important as the glass itself, and you're putting them into your own products, it's wishful thinking, okay, that someone else is going to have a commensurate quality of glass element and or coating. And what's worse is even companies that are buying glass from the originating companies, well, they don't have the same control over it. And I hate to say it, but if you have a competitive advantage on those glass elements, there's no guarantee that you're going to give the competitor the best possible glass element and or coating. So there's very few companies that actually manufacture and control their glass elements. There's Zeiss, Swarovski, Leica, Steiner. Okay, those are like verifiable, it's fact. There's a couple of other companies, Ior Valdata and uh, and Schmidt Bender, but they don't really produce observation optics. Everybody else, and there's some August names in the everybody else, they're buying their glass from those companies or trying to, or they're getting it from what we call the tier two. And again, it's not an insult to those companies, but it's a tier two, the best of which it comes out of Japan. Japan produces outstanding um, optical elements and products. Uh, that company is called Light Optic Works. And, uh, and so you get, you, you kind of get two tiers of these products. Um, and it takes a lot of time and effort to, to sit behind them and actually see the difference. But this isn't a sales pitch. It's, it's just the truth. So when you're looking at light transmission and the optical fidelity of a, an instrument in general, you have to pay some attention to that. Uh, the highest available 
light transmission that I'm aware of is the Zeiss uh, Victory HT binos. It's around 95%. There was another company that is a marketing company that was publishing a 92%. I'm sorry, but I have no faith in that number. Okay. The Zeiss number was tested rigorously. And, and again, you just, you have to look at the source. Mm -hmm. So you want a light transmission in a serious optic in the like 89 would be the lowest you want around 90. And yet you have to be realistic about, you know, what it is that you're getting and who it's, who it's from. So Omer on that point, you know, when I was looking at optics and I remember guys were saying, you know, always said, buy a Swarrow, buy a Swarrow, buy a Swarrow. And you'll, you're not going to notice it so much during the day, but in low light, that's where it's going to hammer you. Um, and is that because of this, this light transmission factor? Is that the main reason they're saying um, that or? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that's one of it. That, that's one of the elements that makes it happen. Um, so you got light transmission and the exit pupil, obviously, but, and then the fidelity and by fidelity, okay. I'll get to that. That's the clarity of the glass and what the coatings okay. do to the light. Um, uh, for sure. And then the other thing is, and, and I'll get into this with spotters, any imperfections in glass become readily pronounced as you climb up the magnification spectrum. Okay. So, and, I, and I'll talk about that when we get to the spotter. Um, another number that you need to pay attention to is eye relief. Really simply, eye relief is the distance in millimeters or inches between the edge of the ocular and the distance, the minimum distance that your eye plane has to be from it to get the full image plane in your eye. That number is really important. Why? Fatigue. If you got an optic that has a really tight eye relief and an eye box, which I'll talk about after, um, you're gonna fatigue very quickly the more fatigued you are, again, the less you glass, the less you glass, the less shit you see. So you can have two guys have 10 by 42 binos. One of them has very generous eye relief and a forgiving eye box. The other could have great glass, but has like a really tight eye relief. Guess who's going to get tired first? Mm. Okay. So in, a, in an observation optic, in particular binos, pay attention to that. Uh, in spotters, I mean, it is what it is. Uh, in rifle scopes, it this is crucial, <laughs> super crucial. And I just yeah, I've got it, the marks to prove it. <laughs> yeah, I, well, I'm, and I'm going to get to that. So, um, when you're looking at a rifle scope, you got to consider, especially for an alpine setup. Uh, eye relief is one of the most important things that I consider. Um, there's really no excuse in today's market to get an optic that's got variable minimum eye relief. It should always be no less than a number, like say 3.4. Uh, however, lots of optics will have a variable upper end to that. And it'll start out say, so say it's got a 3.4 inch minimum eye relief. It'll never get below 3.4 inches, but on low mag, that'll widen out to say almost four inches. Mm -hmm. Then as you creep up the magnification spectrum, that gets tighter until it drops down to 3.4. So if you know that your optic is like that, especially a rifle scope, 
then it's utterly imperative that when you set your eye relief on your gun, you do it at maximum power so that you're at the minimum eye relief. It's a big mistake. Guys will slap the scope on there, put it on low power because it's easier, set the eye relief. And then, you know, the Kyle Stelters of the world have a sexy scar on their face (laughs) uh, because you get in an alpine situation, you're shooting up angle, you're straining to find your eye relief, you're out of position, you're way closer than you had originally thought for your cheek weld, bam, you're going to eat that scope. So you need to pay attention to that. In conjunction with eye relief is a, is a thing that we call eye box. There is no, there's no metric for that on any spec. And it's actually one of the most important things, again, for a rifle scope. Um, basically, the eye box is when you're at the eye relief of an optic, the eye box is the horizontal and vertical planing that you can move your head left, right, up, down. The more forgiving an eye box is, particularly in a rifle scope, the easier it is to jump onto your rig and have sight picture. And perhaps more importantly, between shots, the easier it is to maintain cheek weld and hold sight picture. On that note, Omer, it, if you have with a rifle scope, does that affect parallax? If you have a bigger eye box, isn't the parallax become a factor with that or not really? Um, no, they're not related. Um, parallax okay. is a function of magnification. Uh, and, okay. I, and I'll, I'll mention that uh, down the road here. Um, okay. However, eye box and eye relief, again, will tighten the higher up the magnification spectrum you go. And once you go above 12 power, parallax becomes a problem. So, um, but, but in, in absolute terms, eye box is, is really how much you can move your head mm-hmm. left, right, up, down behind your optic again fatigue right if you got a pair of binos so and i'll I'll say this there is a relationship between generally scopes that have more forgiving eye relief tend to have bigger eye boxes it depends how mechanically they've done that um there is a, a, a positive correlation between the size of the glass in the ocular and the size of the eye box i mean that makes sense it's a bigger window to look out so if you're looking at two binoculars side by side and one of them has physically bigger lenses in the ocular. So if you take a Swarovski SLC and you put it beside a Swarovski EL Swarovision, it's, it's patently obvious the Swarovision has larger lenses in the ocular. While coincidentally, part of the uh, trifecta that makes up the term called Swarovision, HD glass, field flattening lenses, and it has enhanced eye relief and a bigger eye box because of the bigger glass. So this is again, hard to dissect. It takes some digging around and you got to talk to guys that maybe know, but a rifle scope that has a larger tube in the erector system for to accommodate bigger glass will generally do that to give you more eye relief and a bigger eye box. So I got to say one thing about that. A bigger scope tube does not let more light down the tube. The gathering element of an optic is the objective. Right. So you can have a 50, if you have a 50 millimeter objective and you got a one inch 30 mil or 34 mil tube, you're not gonna get more light into your eye. Okay, that's physics. Yeah. I hear it all the time, it's not true. However, a 30 mil or 34 mil tube or bigger, they got 36, they got 40 mil tubes, if the manufacturer has built 
a larger erector tube inside of the outer tube and put larger lenses in it, you're not getting quote unquote more light. You are getting a bigger eye box. So it right. feels like that. Feels okay? like it's more great. Bigger eye box is a good thing. Doesn't matter what you're playing with. Questions on that? Yeah, I do have one. So we talked about um, uh, field of view. So somebody wants to buy a pair of binos, right? And maybe their eyes are going to be really good for, with a Leica or a Suara or a Zeiss or what a Steiner, doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, how do they come into the store and they just try and they go, yeah, that feels right. Is it, is it just a, a matter of preference or what's your, cause it's tough, right? A lot of guys are buying this stuff over the internet. How do you, how difficult. do you figure out what's a good fit for you? Yeah. So um, field of view is a number that is published. Uh, everybody publishes right. that number and that's simply but that doesn't mean much to me. Like I I've seen that. Yeah, it doesn't, no, I, I, like, I totally agree with you. Um, it's, it's a good number to scratch down when you're trying to pick between um, so field of view is simply at a given distance. What is the width of the site picture? So say a 10 right. by 42 bino at a thousand yards has a 250 foot field of view. So then you're like, okay, I want field of view in my rifle scope or my bino or my spotter. And then you can like start making a spreadsheet or whatever the fuck it is you like to do to compare them. That's one thing, yeah. but the ergonomics of an optic are huge. Like they're massive and they are very different. Uh, my friend Waylon, you know Waylon really well. Uh, he wanted uh, like a Geovids. Okay, he has narrow eyes, like his eyes are physically a bit narrow. He cannot physically close the hinge enough on Geovids to accommodate a proper sight picture with both of his eyes. Now, if he had bought those on the internet, got them, mm -hmm. he'd be like, "Well, that's great. I just spent four thousand bucks." And I can't fucking use these, right? So he has to use uh, the Swarovski EL range because they hinge closer. Uh, not just that, their actual eye cups, the screw out eye cups on the Swarovskis are like a millimeter narrower or so on each side. So they fit his, his eyebrows uh, that much better. So yeah, I mean, you can spend all the time you want talking to a guy like me or crawling around birding forums or whatever it is you do. But at the end of the day, you know, uh, there's really no substitute to putting them in your hands. Cause again, right. they all have a different fit. Little things like the focus wheel, you know, like I can, I can sit here and, and show people, um, the difference between the performance of the focus wheel between very premium binos, uh, like to, give you a differential between two, the Zeiss Victory SF. We're talking top tier stuff here, okay? The Zeiss Victory SF and the Swarovski EL Swarovision. On the surface, you're like, those are both top tier binos, okay? However, the Victory SF has a slight, uh, slight advantage when it comes to manipulating. The focus wheel is a bit thicker, so it's easier to grab with one finger. Right. Not just that, the gear is coarser, so that you can go from close focus to infinity with moving it less and the depth of field. So the, um, the distance from you, like between the focal points is deeper. So overall, when you're running those binos, you're having to manipulate them far less. So all of those things are very nuanced and it really helps to talk to someone who actually knows what they're talking about or to get hands on. 
Yeah, it's funny, you know, you get used to what you have to your product. Like I run the ranges, as you know, and uh, Michael throw me his Leicas and they're great binos. No, no criticism, but just they just don't not you ergonomically. I'm not used to them. Right. And, yeah. and trying to figure out the range finding aspect of it. And I he has a hard time ranging mine and vice versa. Right. Like yeah. We sometimes we end up yeah, all that stuff. Yeah. It's just it's just just different. Right. But uh, but yeah, for sure. Like for me, the EL range, when I put them up, it just feels like I'm putting on a glove. It just fits perfectly. So, um, OK, cool. So those are the, the technical points that people really should focus on. Like I said, some of these companies overcomplicate it. They like, like literally field of view is stated in three different ways. Apparent angle, you know, yeah. field of view angle, you know, like we don't think in angles. Most of us don't. Most humans don't. You think field of view, how fucking wide is what I'm fucking yeah. looking at through this fucking optic. Yeah. Okay. I'm not out there with a protractor figuring out the angle. Okay. That's an easy number to grab. So is light transmission. So is eye relief. So is exit pupil. Right. So those things so, will help you differentiate. Especially, so the eye relief yeah. one, let's hit on that for a sec. So yeah. again, like we talked, you know, 4.2, we talked earlier with regards to um, the objective, right? Uh, or sorry, the... Um, uh, that was exit pupil. What was it? 4.2 is exit, exit pupil. pupil. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So... But so with eye relief, um, we know more generous eye relief is a good thing, certainly in a in a, a rifle scope. But I'm buying a set of binos now. Yeah. Uh, do I need to pay attention to that number, or is that just one of those things where I put it on my eye and it feels it looks good? I like the way it looks, and it feels good with the Zeiss, and it doesn't feel good with the whatever. Um, so with so, the swallow yeah. or vice versa. So if a bino fits you, fits your geometry, well, that'll make up for tight eye relief. Okay. Uh, a bino can have all the eye relief in the world, but if it doesn't fit your face, doesn't hold well, mm -hmm. you're going to be fighting it. So it's a balance. So, I mean, the, what I tell people is look at the specs that interest you. People will pick a spec and they'll dance around it. Okay. Whatever it is they want. And then at some point you're going to need to like try to get hands on or, or trust me. Right. Right. Um, yeah. Binos are arguably the most important, significant optic someone's ever going to buy. You spend the most, like if you rank them, you generally look through your binos more than anything else. Uh, second would be your spotter. Although a lot of Alpine hunters, guides, they'll spend more time behind their spotter. And then interestingly, rifle scope and rangefinder are the amount of time you spend looking through those is a fraction like a, like a pittance compared to the binos and the spotter. So if you're starting out, um, you know, it's a toss up uh, between the spotter or the bino, which one you're really going to invest in. Uh, I tell people all the time, like, look, um, I would put my money into the bino to begin with because at a minimum, that's going to help get you in the right zone. Like if you see a sheep on the next valley, through a good set of binos that you wouldn't have picked up with a terrible set of binos, at least you know there's something there and you can get closer even if you got a shitty spotting scope. Mm -hmm. Last thing you should do is have your dad's old, whatever brand they were, scratched up binos. You know, again, you know, grandpa's, you know, pirate spotting scope and spend $3,000 on a nice rifle scope. Because <laughs> you never, your chances of actually getting something 
are, are decreased by not having a good observation optic. Okay. Yep. So we've knocked the binos on the head. Do we want to jump into spotters now or do we want to talk about the range stuff? Probably the spotter and then go back to yeah. range. I know the range aspect fits in with binos, but... Uh, so before we jump to spotter, I'm just going to give people um, some, some products to look at. Okay. Okay. In, in a bino, if that's okay. Um, yeah, so for under a thousand dollars, have a good look at the Zeiss Terra ED. Those aren't made in Germany. Okay. Not at that price point, but the, you know, the, the thing is those guys know how to select glass and it's got Zeiss coatings. So for under a thousand bucks, you're getting as high fidelity as you can across any brand. Uh, number two would be the, uh, the Leopold BX4 Guide Pro. Uh, again, so that's a market. Leopold is a marketing company. Their products start in very good places in the world, and they're often finished in the United States, finished assembly, you know. But the reality is they do not manufacture mm -hmm. the majority of the components and certainly not the glass going into their products. Okay, so there is a separator there. But those have all the quality of life features and their coatings are very good. And then Burris Signature HD binos are actually quite good. Okay, Burris. So to just make a comment about Burris. So the Beretta Group is a big parent company and it owns a whole bunch of companies, including Steiner and Burris. And Steiner is one of those tier one manufacturers. And so they know what they're doing. And there is a definite effort on the part of the group to take the intellectual property and know-how in the Steiner camp and proliferate it into the Burris products at a much more attractive price point. Okay? Okay. On, uh, around 1000, there is one bino that hands down owns it and that's the Leica Trinovid HDs. I think, you know, they're like uh, 1199 Canadian. Um, those binos are amazing for the money. Um, and then also the Steiner HX, they're called. Under two grand, you got the Swarovski SLCs and the Zeiss Conquest HDs. Under 3,000, 100% uh, absolutely owned by the Swarovski Swarovision Bino. That is the, the classic EL Bino. Uh, there's been another new Swarovski Bino release. So we're talking Canadian dollars here. Swarovski lowered the price point of the classic Swarovski Swarovision EL Bino from the 10 by 42 from 32.99 down to 26.59. Wow. At that price point, it's superior to anything else that's available, not simply because of the glass, but because of the ergonomics. Um, the other one to consider is called the Leica Ultravid HD Plus. Um, the glass in the Ultra HD Plus is superior in terms of fidelity to the Swirl. Sorry, Swirl, but it's, I mean, that's my opinion, but there's a lot of fact there. But the Swirls are easily the best buy in, in the vinyl category in general at that point. Uh, I tell guys all the time, at the new price point for the Swirl, Swirl Visions, uh, like save your money and buy those. Over 3000 there's basically four binos, the Zeiss Victory SF, that's their newest product, the Zeiss Victory HT, which has the highest light transmission, the Leica Noctavid, which arguably has the best glass elements available, and the new Swarovski NL Pure, 
um, you know, they range from like thirty four ninety nine to four thousand. Uh, I got to give a, a mention to the NL Pure because I get lots of calls about this. They are legitimate in terms of considering them because they have innovations. They have enhanced ergonomics. They're super comfortable to hold, but they actually have two things, well, three things that really stand out. They've improved the optic system. They're they're incredibly clear to look through, clearer than the uh, previous Swarovision, but they have 30%, up to 30% more eye relief, sorry, field of view than the previous version. So the 12 by 42 NL Pure has the same field of view as the 10 by 42 Swarovision. Vision. That's huge. The 10 mm-hmm. by 42 NL Pure mm-hmm. has the field of view of like the 8 by 42 Swarovision. So you're physically looking at a bigger area, not having to move, not having to reset. With better glass, you're going to see more stuff. And then they have an innovation called the forehead rest. So it's a little device that clamps on, like screws into the bino, and you can set it specifically for your eye relief. And it it allows you to steady those binos free-handed much more easily, which actually makes a 12 by 42 bino viable in the field. Again, that's huge. Huh. Wow. So worthy of consideration. So spotter, mm-hmm. to move to the spotter, um, the spotter is a tough one to talk about for me because mm-hmm. ironically, there are very few viable choices. Okay. Um, you know, there's all kinds of spotters on the market. There's some really good product out there. You got zoom ranges from, you know, like say 15 to 45 or 15 to 48, uh, 25 to 50 wide angle, uh, and then the 20 to 60. So if we're talking alpine hunters in particular, the purpose of your spotting scope is to do one thing. And what is that? Get as close to the subject as possible, given the atmospherics. So, you know, given the choice, I'm going to take a 60 power or more, right? So 25 to 50 wide angle sounds good on paper. You got a larger field of view. But that's not the intent. That's what your bino's for. Exactly. Yeah. You pick something up, then you zero in on it. You want to get as close as possible. So zero. now we want to go to sixty power. Right. Okay. There's a few spotters out there that go there. I can rattle them off. But remember the previous discussion about light transmission, glass fidelity. So what seems okay at right. ten power or twenty power, by the time you zoom up to sixty, becomes painfully evident Mm -hmm. when you're dealing with different grades of glass so for those guys that are having to gear up and the spotting scope is on their radar uh, i'm sorry to tell you that you really can't go below the swarovski s series like the sts or ats 65 with the 20 to 60 eyepiece you don't have to spend more than that spotter, but you you can't spend less. And um, so these Canadian these Canadian tire ones I see all they're good the place for looking the through down? your neighbor's uh, window. Um, 
Okay. Like, so, so look, like, you know, I mean, that's a big statement and I say it to guys all the time and I'm, you know, I'm real sorry to, to drop that bomb, but, but it's, it's true. Uh, I sell a lot of spotting scopes, like of, of observation optics. I sell lots of the S series. Who's the most frequent purchaser guides. Okay. I sell more spotters to guides and outfitters right. than I do to individual resident hunters. Why are they choosing the Swarovski? Because their client's success rate actually depends upon them being able to identify an animal and cover ground efficiently. Um, it's just facts. Right. I've had the displeasure of having to deal with guys that bought wrong the first time. We're very upset about it after a season we're talking like I'm not going to name the competitor but there's a product out there that offers like a 20 to 60 in a larger objective it has a fairly attractive price point but once you go above 45 it becomes very very apparent that that you just can never get it sharp enough and when you're trying to count points on an elk or fronts on a moose or top points or most certainly the rings on a ram, yeah. uh, it's going to come to bear. So then those those poor souls are forced to live with it or sell something used, lose money, and then re-up and get into the Swarovski spotter. There really is, mm. currently, there really is no substitute for a three-pound high-fidelity spotting scope that will utterly resolve whatever it is you're looking at at maximum power which is 60. right yeah you always hear that uh save up and buy it right and that's that definitely sounds like something that uh you you should be doing that because you, you see it all the time people are always flipping spotters yeah. and saying that they want to upgrade so that's that's a, a my advice is topic there that sorry educated me my advice to them is go like ahead. look go ahead like do not buy wrong like I don't want to sell it to you this year. Like talk to me next yeah. year. But once you do it, you'll only do it once. You'll never have to do it again. Do it right. And I've never, ever, ever in all the years I've been selling this, had someone call me and say, yeah, I got a Swarovski STS 65. I wonder if you'll take it on trade against one of these other brands. But I get a lot of the reverse. Yeah. Kyle, you bought your right. Swarovski a long time ago. There's a whole yeah. bunch of new shit that's come out since then. Have you ever been in a situation where you're like, God damn, I need to call Omer and get a different spotter? Nope, never. No. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What What does Mike uh, always say? Uh, buy once, cry once, right? So just get it all out and pay for it and get it exactly. done. Exactly. What, what's, so you said S, the S series is the, kind the of the. S series. Yeah. There's basically the ATS, which is angled, STS, which is straight. Right. And there's okay. a 65 millimeter and an 80 millimeter objective. And there's also right. a 25 to 50 wide angle eyepiece, which uh, honestly, I only recommend if people are doing photography through it or if they're going to be looking at, you know, movers, like if they're looking at ducks and birds and stuff. But for the hunter, right. honestly, right. 90%, if not more, are the ATS 65 with 20 to 60 eyepiece. Now, That's exactly what I have. Steve, you had mentioned right. straight or angled. Right? So for an alpine yes. hunter, yes. a straight is fine if your wife's a chiropractor. 
Otherwise, get an angle. <laughs> Acquisition through an angle is a little right. bit awkward. But if you just think about it mechanically, right. when you're looking through a straight spotter and it's on a tripod, it's a one-to-one -one mm -hmm. motion between the, yeah, the movement of the objective and how you have to situate your eye behind the eyepiece. And you have to put it perpendicular to the eyepiece. So the moment you get to a 45 degree angle up yeah. view, you're kind of having a, it's you either got to crank that tripod really high and lean your head yeah. back, or you just get fatigued. And again, if you get fatigued, you're not going to glass. The angle is like a reducer gear. Now it's less yeah. intuitive, but the Swarovski comes with a little peep on it. So you can look through that peep and it gets you in the neighborhood and then your oh. eyepiece will be on target. Well, the other aspect too with the angle is you can turn it upside down and then you're not exposing yourself when you're glassing. If you're pretty close in on rams, you're worried about seeing them. We've done that lots of times where we set the spotter up. We just have it clearing really? the plane and then we can sit below and we can look. It's it's a pain in the ass. It's like it a beats periscope. The hell out of, exactly. You you're, not, you're not scaring rams off, right? Yeah. So something I've done that several about. times because that you know rams yeah. are so intuitive when you're close in. They, they, they're walking around with 10 times. Kind of nice, eh? Uh, you guys can just lay there and cuddle. And just kind of turn the spotter, just kind of tip your head up a little bit. I get it. There, there's there's no rams around at all. They're just laying on their back. Busted. Oh, there's some rams going on. Let me tell you. Come come look all at right, this. Right, right, right. So above that, still above that price point, there are a few yes. options, and I'd like to talk about them if you want. For sure. Yeah. Um. So you know the Absolutely. the new um spotter by Swaro, relatively new, is called the X series. It's a modular series. Um, it has an angled or straight eyepiece. It has four objective sizes, a 65, 85, 95, and 115, which I know, Cole Hank, if you listen to this, I know you're going to buy one eventually, um, <laughs> if you haven't already. And then it's got a BTX, which is like a two, it's like a binocular that will connect to one of those objectives. Um, and then there's a 1.7 magnification booster. So when you, the whole idea is to allow you some modularity and for guys that have the budget, uh, we frequently sell them the 65 objective for when they need to go light, the 95 objective when they're willing to pack, you know, a little bit more weight or if they're like less ambulatory in, in their hunting. Um, and then that 1.7 extender is remarkable. So with the 65 and 85 objective, it boosts the maximum magnification to 100 power. With the 95, it boosts it to 120 power. I have no idea what it boosts 115 to. I'll know when I get one. Um, and it's very usable. But again, and, and guys know this, you have to have the right atmospherics. Like if you're hunting sheep in August and it's hot, you're not going to get above 40, 45 power if you're lucky. But for later mm -hmm. season hunts, um, there are guys that use that to uh, with great success. Um, another spotter that I'm a huge fan of is the Leica Televid APO. Uh, it was available in the 65 millimeter, which they've discontinued, and the 82 millimeter. Uh, it it comes with a 25 to 50 wide angle eyepiece. Uh, it also has a 1.8 extender that you can use with the angled body which will boost it from 50 to 90 power um, one of the advantages or some of the advantages of the Leica over the others is it's very compact 
so that 82 with the extender is more compact in length and bulk than any other larger spotter out there. Um, the glass fidelity uh, is perhaps the best out of the big three. Like Leica's glass elements are superior in terms of color rendition, contrast, and definition. Uh, and the focus mechanism on the Leica, a lot of guys will attest to this if they have one. It has a macro and micro focus wheel. So you can, and, and moving those focus wheels are not, they don't make the spotter uh, wobble. So it's, it's decidedly easier to get focused on your target using that. Um, the, um, then there's the Zeiss. There's the Zeiss Dioscope 85, which is discontinued. But if you can find one of those used, buy it. Um, it's one of the best spotters ever made in a larger format. I ran one for a long time, and to be honest with you, I regret selling it. Uh, it goes to 75 power. It's not that heavy. Um, we were on a sheep hunt, and two of the guys are professional guides. And they both looked through it, and they were like, holy shit, will this ever save walking time? They were running Swarrows. Uh, awesome product if you can find it used. And then there's the Zeiss Harpia, which comes in an 85 and 95. It's got mind-blowing optical clarity and mechanics in it. I would say the downside is that they're like 70 ounces. So for the Alpine Hunter, it's a little bit prohibitive. So, you know, I hate to say this, but, well, I don't hate to say it, but it's kind of the truth. Swarovski tends to own the spotting scope business in general at the premium segment. But certainly for the Alpine Hunter. Right. Yeah. Uh, anything else on? For, I think that kills the, the spotter. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Okay. So, and nothing, nothing at the low end. Like you, you, you said, start. That's where you're starting. Starting at that. Um, it's my opinion, kind of and, the, I'm, and I'm welcome to it. Yeah. Right. For sure. Okay. Good. Uh, rifle scopes. Yeah, um, rifle scopes and rangefinders. Um, I'll just I'll hit I'll hit rangefinders first. Sure. Um, sure. Because it's 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 fairly brief. Um, like, look, there's no need to fucking guess out there. Get a rangefinder. If you're going to shoot animals beyond 200 yards, get a rangefinder. There's no need to guess, and you owe it to the animal to know exactly how far you're shooting. In fact, if you don't have your ballistics figured out to a T, like, don't take that shot. Okay, or get closer. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, get a rangefinder. Um, when you're buying a rangefinder, you need to know what you want and need. There's basically two camps nowadays. There are rangefinders that provide what's called equivalent horizontal distance or angle compensated distance, like the shoot to distance. Within that, they're stratified in ones that just do the cosine calculation to figure out what the equivalent distance is after angle. And those that have an onboard station sensor to adjust for real-time atmospherics that will, again, adjust that effective range and then there is a new generation of ballistic compensating range finders okay so that boils down to how do you shoot uh like kyle you have a ballistic turret on your scope right mm -hmm. so your turret expresses your ballistics in, in in yards like a yardage turret so all you need to know is the shoot to distance okay mm -hmm. so you can if you're going to shoot with your turret in that manner, you don't need a dynamic ballistic compensating rangefinder. Um, for those that want to shoot in the quote-unquote most accurate means possible, 
They're going to need to leave their turret or their reticle in MOA or mill increments and use a dynamic ballistic compensating rangefinder. What I mean by that is, instead of expressing your ballistics on the turret in yardage, you program the rangefinder with your ballistics, and then the rangefinder in the field to varying degrees, okay, will interpret atmospherics, what's your elevation, what's the temperature, air pressure, your compass heading, so that it can calculate Coriolis. This Again, I'm telling you what some of them do. The distance for spin drift, aerodynamic jump, there's a whole slew of things that will affect accuracy. You're going to range your target. It's going to adjust for all of that. And then it's going to tell you how many MOA or mil to dial on your turret. Okay. So generally speaking, if you're going to shoot beyond 700 yards, it's more accurate to go to shooting with a ballistic compensating rangefinder than using a yardage turret. Okay. But there's one big thing I got to say here. And you got to understand the situation that you're going to be in and what can happen in the field. So it's great to shoot in the most accurate means possible. Shooting with a dynamic ballistic compensating rangefinder with your turret expressed in MOA or mil. But there is a big, and I do mean big, issue with that. And that is you have to use that rangefinder. So Kyle, if you drop your EL range and it shatters, right? And Mike has, he can have a shitty bush. Sorry, I shouldn't say shitty, but like a really base model rangefinder that just does angle compensated distance, he can range for you. If you're going on a guided stone sheep hunt and in the moment, the guide forgot your binos your, your ballistic compensating rangefinder binos back on the horse and all he has is his rangefinder that does just angle, you're in deep shit. So you really need to take that into consideration. So it's nice to be more accurate. We all want to strive for that. Mm-hmm. But you got to really look at the potential situation you can get in. And being slaved, if you're a solo hunter, so so be it. But you got to think this, this stuff through. Now the good news is that almost all of the modern ballistic compensating rangefinders also do just angle and atmospherics or just angle. So you can ramp up if you want, but it's, right. listen, I've been on the panicked, and I do mean panicked. Okay. Phone calls where someone is on a guided hunt and something's gone haywire with their system, despite having had this conversation. So, you know, right. you try to avoid it. Um, when you're buying one of these things, so the angle compensating ones are simple. Do not buy a rangefinder unless it angle compensates. The newish ones will also take into consideration atmospherics, which is another degree of, of relevancy that you should consider. When you're looking at the ballistic compensating set, again, there are varying degrees of them, um, but all the modern ones are app driven via Bluetooth. So you can store a whole slew of ballistic solutions on your phone and then just load the one that you want at the time. Then once you're in the field, you don't need your phone anymore. Okay. And then uh, for those people that really want to get dialed in, some of them are compatible with an applied ballistics device and applied ballistics is the go-to ballistic engine out there. Uh, And the purpose of that is like, generally you can connect it to a Kestrel that Mm -hmm. will allow you to do so. 
so you can dope real-time win if you want to wow. okay so to give you a real life analogy uh my stone sheep hunt with with garrick uh this last september that ram was 909 yards that's kind of the shoot to distance that we were looking at so you know he he utilized his ballistic compensating rangefinder and his kestrel to determine whether or not the win was an acceptable variant. We had that conversation. He's like, the wind is less than one MOA of variance at that distance. So, you know, we were green light to take that shot. If it was like two or three MOA, um, I'm here to tell you, we wouldn't have taken that shot. We would have got closer or waited. Mm-hmm. So that's mm-hmm. where all of this stuff comes to bear on the ethics, which should always be in people's minds. Right. Okay. Um, in terms of brands for these, there's so much stuff on the market. Um, you know, in, in, in equivalent horizontal range or angle compensation ones, I mean, you can get a good one from Bushnell for like just over 200 bucks. Um, the one that I recommend the most in terms of overall quality is the Leica 2400R. And then there's SIG mm-hmm. has all these BDX rangefinders that are incredible. They can do everything you want. They can run as an angle compensator or ballistic compensating one with a really good app. Uh, if you get into the ballistic compensating ones, again, Leica and SIG kind of own that market. Uh, an adjunct to this, like you have, Kyle, why do you run rangefinder binos? Uh, simplicity one one thing um one thing less to worry about it's there i have it all the time so yeah so yeah. so there there are a few on the market to look at uh nikon laser force those are discontinued but you can get them for 1200 bucks they're pretty good sig bdx 3000 those are like 1600 dollars. they're amazing the glass quality is not with the other ones uh but like the rangefinder function and their capability is amazing Leica has three different offerings at different price points. Swarovski has the EL range that you own, and they have a new version coming out this spring that does all the ballistic stuff now, and then Zeiss. So, you know, generally, if you look at the cost of a quality binocular and a good rangefinder, the rangefinder binos are at that or less. And again, simplicity. As you're glassing, you're always ranging. Some people worry about their battery dying and losing their rangefinder. Well, that could happen to your rangefinder on its own, right? It's good for like a thousand and you carry a spare battery, like big deal. Oh, but that's so heavy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. That's a okay, whole other so that, that kills that. Yeah, I definitely need to good. upgrade my rangefinder. I've got uh, a yardage pro that's got to be 20 years old. So <laughs> that's good info. I there. might know a guy that can help you. Do you? Um, <laughs> oh, I, I might. After, yeah. after, after this, we should chat. Give, give me his I info. Think so, for sure. <laughs> How are we doing on time, Kyle? Uh, yeah, let's 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 jump into the rifle scope thing. And Unle- unless you're going to take half an hour, we got the time. So okay. if we do it in ten minutes, we're good. Okay, I'll so. I'll try and skip through it. Okay, so rifle scopes, uh, obviously, very 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 important um, for most hunters. Ironically, it's the optic that you look through the least. Okay, set in your gun, fucking a, let's go, bang, kill something, high five, let's go. Um, but when you're getting into nuance. And you're setting up something, especially an alpine rig. Um, there, there, there are some important things there. I consider the rifle scope to be both the steering wheel and the windshield 
of the rifle. Okay, if you think of a vehicle, if you got if you got a clear windshield so you can see what you're looking at, great. But if the steering wheel's shitty, you know, it's not going to be responsive. So there's the glass side of it. And if you're dialing a turret, then, uh, you know, you need to be very concerned about the mechanics. Um, you need to consider the zoom range. What zoom range do you want? Are you okay with a three to nine? Or do you want to, you know, go all the way up to like a, you know, I can sell you a seven to 35. Technical difficulties. We will be right back. <laughs> learning lots which is not unexpected like any other conversation we have with him no doubt eh yeah am i back you have me oh, you're back you're there solid we go. he's talking you are there so far. we go sorry about that i i have it on do not disturb but fucking people are still trying to call me through this stupid they thing right. bastards. yeah Dude, that's what it was okay so uh i think we're talking about desired zoom range yes um so you know, if you're just going to be shooting through it, you know, I mean, it's a big decision to make. People are attracted to hyper zoom scopes, like the higher the mag, the better. Um, the reality is like taking a shot on an animal on high zoom is going to narrow your field of view and it's going to make it harder for follow up. And it also introduces more parallax error. So you really need to think that carefully. Um, some people multi-purpose their optic. Okay. They will get like a, say, to point out a scope, uh, the 5 to 30 Swarovski Z6. And what they'll do is, you know, they'll use that as an observation optic quite frequently. Uh, it's got great, great glass. So they'll view, you know, use it like a 10 power bino. And if they want to get closer, they'll zoom in without having to pull their spotter out. So you got to make that decision. Um, then it's the whole thing about parallax. If you buy an optic above 12 power, it's going to introduce parallax error. Um, so you're going to need uh, to understand how to use a parallax knob. Basically, it's like a focus knob. But the reality is, is if you're shooting at distance beyond 300 yards and you haven't corrected for parallax, you're probably going to not be on your point of aim. So that you means to, to be... want to get into parallax a little bit for those that don't really know? So in simple terms, if you visualize this, your reticle is on a pane of glass inside the scope. Yeah. As you zoom up, as you increase magnification, the physics of an optic, it focuses the image on a different pane of glass. Right. And the higher the magnification, the greater the dissonance between where that reticle actually is on the image and where it appears to be on the image. And by focusing your parallax, it just coincidentally puts everything into focus, but it also removes the parallax error. Right. It's a necessary evil to high mag optics, and it has to be corrected. Okay. Um, objective size. So, you know, you again, bearing in mind exit pupil and all that, uh, it used to be that like 50 millimeter objective scopes were, weren't so popular. Um, they're more popular now because actually with modern, most rifle scope stocks, uh, most rifle stocks, you can mount the rifle scope with like a medium mount so that you're not compromising the cheek weld. The important of cheek weld is again, jumping into the sight picture, um, making sure that you're, you're locked in on your target and then you could reacquire um, your, your target after each shot. So, you know, if you want something really low and tight to the, the, the rifle, if it's gonna go in a scabbard or something like that, sure get a 40 or 44. Um, 
consider 50s uh increases the light gathering just makes the optic that much easier to look through dawn or dusk uh, i shy away from 56s on most setups that don't have uh, mounts and or stocks that will compromise the cheek weld or adjust for that higher scope mount um, weight weight's always a factor especially on a rig you know those numbers are published so you know pick what you're willing to bear there is a trade-off between ultra light and durability though here to tell you um do you want to talk specific scopes or do you got questions uh no let's yeah, let's jump right into the uh, specifics start looking at uh you know kind of the base level that you start at and where okay. you go up to so wh when we're talking about hunting in the alpine uh almost invariably it's going to involve long-range shooting like people want the capability to to tag an animal out to a given distance they'll set a limit for themselves or no limit um so when it comes to the optics that i sell most frequently um the conversation that i have is do you want a reticle or do you want a turret if they want a reticle they're gonna have to like i'm gonna grill them on that holdover reticles are more prone to error for a lot of reasons a lot of good reasons um, they're often dependent upon the magnification it's like a second focal point reticle in miller moa your scope's going to have to be at a given magnification often that's a maximum and very often you don't want to be at maximum magnification when you shoot and if you're off that those holdovers are wrong if you're using a ballistic reticle like the swarovski brx or brh it has to be at a very specific magnification for the holdovers to be what you want them to sometimes that magnification isn't one that's marked on the scope it's going to be like 17 and a half well, a zoom ring doesn't click like a turret. So if you want precision and to be ethical, you know, you're very often using a turret. It's more precise. Every click is the same increment throughout the adjustment range. So when we're talking a turret, you know, people have preferences. Do you want it to lock? Do you want it to cap? Well, you got to look at the optic and figure out which one you want. Leopolds have a locking turret. Swarovski turrets don't lock. They freewheel. Um, so, you know, some people make decisions around that. Uh, now, when we're talking how far someone wants to shoot, that becomes very simple. Um, you know your Swarovski, your scope, right? On your old rig, say. Um, yep. You remember the zero? You remember when you turned the turret, it would stop before one revolution. Yeah. Okay. So Swarovskis, the way their zero stop works, it works both ways. You set the zero stop, and you can only do just under one rotation. It will give you, no matter how it's mounted. It'll never give you more than in a Z3 or a Z5, 13 and a half MOA of adjustment. So when you're putting together your, your rig, you can use a ballistic calculator to look at how far 13 and a half MOA is going to get you. On a non-magnum, let's say a 100-yard zero, it's going to be around 500 yards. On a magnum with a 200-yard zero, you're going to cap out usually under 700 yards. If that doesn't suit your needs, you're going to have to move to another optic. That's just how it is. That's how their zero stop mechanically works. Now talking Swarrow, they have a huge line of scopes, Z3, Z5, Z6, Z8. Amazing light gathering, amazing performance, but often that, that maximum available distance of adjustment uh, in elevation is a deciding factor. So if you wanna move to something that's gonna give you uh, more range, there's a whole slew of optics. Uh, our top picks here on long-range rigs are the Zeiss, the Leopold, and the Night Force. So Leopold has several lines, VX Freedom, VX3, um, 
i and now the new vx3 hd vx5 hd vx6 hd and mark 5 hd there are differences among all those lines more and more features the sweet spot in the in the leopold line is the vx5 hd 3 to 15 by 44. It has one of the longest available eye reliefs in an optic, around 3.9 inches. It's got an amazingly generous eye box. Like you jump behind that scope, it's hard to get behind other scopes in your, your retinue, right? It's got a locking two revolution turret. It'll give you 38 MOA of available adjustment, wow. capped windage, really good uh, optics, and Leopold will engrave a ballistic turret for free. Okay, what's one of our top selling, sorry? What's one of those worth? Um, they're, they start around 1500. That's it, eh? Yeah, wow. they're, they're, they're amazing. That's uh, pretty good. Stepping up to like the 6HD, you get a wider zoom range because it's got a six power. You get Illumina flip-up covers. They all have illumination. They have an integrated anti-cant system. That reticle flashes when you're, when you're not, uh, when you're canting, but the glass is the same. And then they're Mark V HD, like you have on, on your gun, Kyle. Uh, again, it's got an, it's got slightly tighter eye relief, but the eye box is actually more generous. Hmm. Okay, but again, that that scope is just over thirty ounces. It's a little bit big. It's got bigger turrets. It's a bigger beast, but uh, it's got three revolutions. So you got like sixty MOA of adjustment, which will put you, you know, your rig will shoot like fourteen, fifteen hundred yards. So you know, Bob's your uncle. Whatever you want. Uh, Leopold's got it. The Zeiss scopes, the V4 Conquest in particular, uh, I describe these scopes as a, um, a, a Night Force NXS with better glass, uh, improved reticles, a smaller footprint, and they're like in the low 20 ounce category. The, the big difference between the Zeiss V4 or V6 and the, the Leopold's is they have a true uh, mechanical zero stop. So for, for guys that'll understand this, a VX5 HD 3 to 15, no matter what you do, the maximum amount of adjustment you're going to get out of that scope is 38 MOA. The turret will only allow two revolutions. Great. The Zeiss V4 and the V6, using their 4 to 16 by 44 as an example, that scope has 80 MOA of total travel in the elevation turret. Wow. If wow. you if you mount it accordingly, you can have all of that available to you if you think you need it. Okay. Yeah. And those scopes are again in the teens. They make a four to 16 by 44, four to 16 by 50, a six to 24 by 50. We use them an awful lot because there's just no downside to them. Uh, and then uh, another favorite that I'll mention are the new Night Force NX8 scopes. They have two models with a bunch of variants. They make a 2.5 to 20 by 50. So think about that zoom range. 2.5 on the low end, 20 on the high end. It's good in absolutely every situation. And they make a four to 32 by 50, which is ridiculous in terms of a, a super zoom, yet it's not restrictive on the low end. Those scopes, unlike other night forces, are under 30 ounces. They come in first or second second focal plane, mill or MOA. They have illumination, and they're built fucking tough. Okay, I have guys that have made 
they prefer one thing or the other, but when they realize they can put a night force on their rig, it's not going to be too heavy, but that thing is going to put up with any abuse they might dish it. Um, they make that choice. Those scopes are generally, they start at like $2,500 Canadian and, and, and go to 3000 again, not, a an insignificant spend by any stretch, but when you consider what you're getting, uh, again, it has a true zero stop with hundred MOA. It's a true long range, um, very durable and precise rifle scope that offers you features that actually no one else has right now. Uh, Garrick made his 909 and 848 shots on that Ram with that exact scope, the 2.5 to 20. Wow. So hundred MOA. You said there's a hundred MOA of available adjustment on that scope. Yeah. Wow. That's insane. <laughs> wow. So that kind of hammers, um, the stuff that we, now there are other options. Like I have other brands. Um, but when we're talking, you know, precision rigs, when the chips are down, those are the optics that, you know, it's a Swarrow, a Leopold, a Zeiss or a Night Force. Um, unless someone has a pension for something else. I sell Huskama. Uh, I, we use those frequently. People love their turrets. Um, but um, Okay, so somebody wants to buy one, um, get set up for any optics. Uh, what's what's the best way? Give you a phone call, come down to the shop. What, what do you recommend? All of the above. Uh, call us at 250-747-1621, except when I'm doing podcasts. Um, <laughs> email us at precisionoptics at telus.net or hotmail.com. Um, you know, go on our website. We run a really good website. Uh, we're on Instagram at precision.optics. Um, we'll sort you out. Um, and, you know, and to be very clear here, you know, I don't just curry my time to people spending, you know, exorbitant amounts of money. No, I can, um, I can vouch for that. Yeah. Like I will help you put together whatever it is that you want at the, at the price in your budget. Um, and, um, yeah, I mean, take your time. Uh, I can tell people by the time they listen to this, uh, this year is going to be very difficult for supply of certain brands of optics, uh, and ammunition. So, you know, the sooner you can sort of make a decision on what you want for this coming year and, uh, and get your dealer, it doesn't have to be me, get your dealer kind of in the pipe to try to reserve you that optic in particular, like if it's a Swarrow or a Leopold. It's going to be a very, very tough year uh, to supply everybody what they need, um, you know, sooner rather than later is better. Fantastic. One, I'll just say to our listeners, that's one thing dealing with you. Um, when I bought my first uh, optic, it was that spotter. Uh, I called you and you spent endless hours, endless amount of time, maybe hours was is an exaggeration. Um, and there was no pressure to buy. And I've since bought from you and there's been times where I've been like, hey, I'm looking at this and it's a bit more expensive and you've talked me out of it saying, hey, this is a better product for what you need. So um, I think when it comes to gear, I think that's the one thing that you really bring value to is you give an honest opinion and like obviously a brands you work with, but I've ne you never said, oh, you got to buy a, a Leopold, you got to buy a Zeiss, you got to buy a Swarrow. It's always been a, a wide range of discussions and I bought a number of different optics off you. It's not just been one brand. So um, I think it's a, I get a very honest conversation with you. And I think when people talk to you, that's what they're going to get. Um, and especially if you can come in the store, if anyone happens to be in Quinell and can stop by, I think that's even a better case scenario. Girls make really good cinnamon buns here too. So, and sandwiches, <laughs> sandwiches, there are pretty unreal as well. When they're stopped in. <laughs> All right, man, we've taken enough of your time. Uh, appreciate it, Omer. Uh, 
always just learn so much. Uh, I thought I knew a little bit about optics. I clearly know nothing. Um, and it became pretty clear in the first three minutes talking to you. So appreciate no, your time and no, thank you no for everything. Man. Yeah, my pleasure, guys. You bet. If you looked up the words conservation superhero in the dictionary, you would see a picture of our friend Omer from Precision Optics, a tireless donor and supporter of all things wild sheep. Precision Optics, located in Quinell, British Columbia, truly stands alone in the high alpine. From optics to rifles to outdoor gear and a knowledge that cannot be surpassed, toss in that killer smile and you have a total conservation package. Precision Optics, we are truly thankful for the support you show us every step of the way. Find them online at precisionoptics.net or in Aroma Foods, located just off Highway 97 in Quinell, B. See.